So Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse uh, 22, beloved, before we hear God's word, let's go to him uh, in prayer. Please pray with me. Our Father and our God, we thank you, O Lord, that our sins have been forgiven in Jesus Christ, and that we are your children, and as your children, we pay attention to your words. And so we pray, Father, that uh, by your Spirit, you would give us uh, grace um, to listen and to hear what the Gospel is teaching us this evening. We pray, Father, that we would recognize the glory of the Messiah in these pages, and that we would humble ourselves and bow down to his lordship. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 22. Beloved, this is uh, the word of God. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. This is the word of God. Well, we are told here that a demon-possessed man is brought to Jesus We are also told that this man's demon possession caused him to be blind and mute because once Jesus cast out the demon, he began to see and to speak. This reminds us of two things here. Satan and his demons are at work in the world. The fact that this man was demon-possessed draws us into thinking about the spiritual realm where Satan and his demons exist. So this is a reality, whether someone admits it or not. And so Satan and his demons are a spiritual reality. But we also see that there is a connection between what takes place in the spiritual realm and the kind of effects that those, that activity has in the physical world. The demon possession this man experienced, spiritual realm, had negative physical effects. He was blind and mute. Today we might think about a person who is severely addicted to a drug or severely addicted to alcohol. Usually for that person, you can see the physical effects that those addictions have on a person. You can physically see them, usually. So you see there the relationship between the spiritual and the physical. This relationship between these two realms is made clear here uh, when Jesus heals him. In verse 22, the man begins to speak and to see. So those are the positive effects of positive activity in the spiritual world. The physical healing, of course, reminds us of our inability, our spiritual inability to see or to speak. Apart from the grace of Christ, we are spiritually blind and mute. We are unable to save ourselves. Jesus, but when Jesus comes, when we come into contact with him by faith, he is able to open our eyes. He's able to give us a tongue 
that can speak truth, and that can praise him for what he has done. Well, Jesus also speaks about the spiritual realities here in verse 28. He mentions the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And so we see in this man the positive physical effects that the Holy Spirit had on him in the physical world, or the evidence of the positive effects in the spiritual realm that this uh, that the Holy Spirit had on this man, and we see that evidence in the physical realm. So here again we see that Jesus has come to overturn the damaging effects of Adam's fall into sin. Because Adam sinned, all men at birth are spiritually blind. We are deaf, we are dumb, unable to save ourselves. We are spiritually handicapped, in need of a Savior. And so when Jesus comes, he begins to overturn these things. And the evidence of that is in, this, in these physical healings. He has come to overturn Satan's tyrannical reign on earth since the fall. That is what these miracles show us. As Jesus is undoing what Satan tempted Adam to do. Which was bring the earth and man under the curse. Under the curse of death and sin. Now this is another glorious miracle that Jesus performs, but this section doesn't focus on the miracle essentially. The focus of this section is on the response of the Pharisees. Their interpretation of what they saw took place before them. That's what the focus of this section is. How did the Pharisees understand this wonderful healing that they couldn't deny? And so with this said, we first turn to the Jewish crowd's response to this man's healing. So we're going to look at the Pharisees' response Let's first look at what the crowd said. They initially say, can this be the son of David? That was their response to this wonderful healing. What they were really saying then by this title, son of David, was can this man be the Messiah? Can this be the Jewish Messiah that's promised in our very own scriptures? Is this Jesus Israel's long-awaited king? Is this the long-awaited savior of the world that will bring blessing to all nations? That's what they meant by that title. And so then what is clear here is that the Jews knew enough about the messianic promises to associate these demonstrations of power and glory with the miracles with the fulfillment of Old Old Testament promises of the coming king. You can see that. They weren't ignorant, in other words. Could this be the son of David mean they, they, put, they take one plus one and almost get to two? They say, here's a miracle being performed. Here's this man performing miracles. We have our scriptures that promise a Messiah, a divine Messiah king who would come one day come. Could this be the Messiah? Could one plus one equal two? And so we know from the end that they crucified the son of David. These crowds, for the most part, most of these people did not have faith in Christ. Their thinking and their questioning then fell short of a heart and soul commitment to Christ, even though their, their question is leading in the right direction. And so that's what we see here. For a moment, they were thinking the right things. They were leaning in the right direction. And we do know that some of them uh, were drawn to Christ, and that's the point that Jesus, it's the point of all of this that, that Jesus was doing, the miracles and his words. He was still calling people to believe in him. But for the most part, these crowds did not believe. 
Although this question is the right question to ask, and it is true, can this be the son of David? Yes, it is. It is the son of David. It is the Messiah. Receive him. Worship him. That was the point. But they would not because they were spiritually blind and dumb. And so most of them stayed in their spiritual ignorance. Now this would be like a person who lives on the ocean coast who steps out into his front porch and feels 70 mile an hour, 70 mile an hour and plus winds right in his face. He sees dark clouds on the horizon. He looks in the sky and there's lots of lightning and he looks into the ocean and there's 50 foot waves swelling up in the ocean taller than twice his homes, twice of his home coming toward him. And he asks the question as he sees all this, could this be a hurricane? And then they, he calmly goes back inside, does nothing, and he's swept away by the storm. That's kind of the idea behind this question. Could this be the son of David? We'll see. No, you either com- commit completely to Christ or you don't. That's it. It's not enough to simply ask the right questions. It's a heart and soul commitment to Christ or a heart and soul commitment the other way. But what this question does is prompt, prompt the Pharisees to slander Jesus among the people. They hear this question being asked, and the Pharisees, they can't have these people thinking that this is the Son of David. They can't have them thinking that this is the Messiah and that this is someone that they should uh, pay homage to. And so they say, in response to their question, no, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, which means the Lord of the Flies, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. Now we are told here that Jesus knew the thoughts of the Pharisees. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus responds. As the son of David, Jesus does have full knowledge of every single one of our thoughts, every single one of our desires, our emotions. He knows them all. He is God. And so also here, he knew the Pharisees better than they knew themselves. And the statement also probably alludes to the fact that the Pharisees did not say their slander openly. So this might have been something that they said secretly, but Jesus knew their thoughts. He hears every word, regardless of whether or not he is physically present as the Messiah there. He knows what we say. He knows what we think. And so they may have been saying this quietly, whispering it, gossiping among the crowds. Well, he brings us out to the open. Jesus makes the issue public. Now we need to understand that in reality, there is one prince of demons, Satan. Jesus names him in verse 26. His name is Satan. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he was contending against the solitary prince of darkness, the solitary prince of demons, and he won, he overcame. Satan showed Jesus the kingdoms of the world, and what did Satan say to him? These are all mine. He didn't say these are all ours, mine and this other prince, or other princes. He said they're all mine. They belong to one prince of darkness. In verse 29, Jesus represents Satan as the strong man of the house. Satan's house, then, is the world. By binding Satan, Jesus is able to take back from Satan what truly belongs to Jesus. He's able to plunder his goods. What are those goods? Well, if the world is Satan's so-called house, the goods are people. 
People who at once served Satan and his lies were slaves to sin, now through faith in Christ serve the King of Kings. That is what Jesus does when he, that, that is how he plunders the goods of Satan's uh, house. He's plundering Satan's house by calling people to himself from all over the world. Now, Jesus can do this because Satan is powerless. He is bound. And ultimately, he is bound because Christ died and was raised on the third day. Now, overcoming Satan temptation, tem- Satan's temptation in the wilderness, healing people like this man, it was all evidence that Jesus was binding Satan and he was plundering his house. And so there's one so-called Lord of the Flies, one Satan, one archenemy, and he has demonic followers. But the Pharisees, now why do I bring that up? Because the Pharisees, by their slander, they introduce a fictional spiritual reality. They're lying, and they are created this fictional storyline, and they've inserted Jesus into that storyline. They say, he cast out demons by the prince of demons, Beelzebul, meaning there are contending forces in the demonic realm. Beelzebul is a prince over some demons. He's got his own little gang, this Lord of the Flies, and he is in contest with another prince or other princes who have their own demons of their own. What they say then is that in this fictional reality, Jesus has then aligned himself with one of these gang leaders, one of these princes, and is using his power to fight against the demons of another prince, another lord of the flies, or another lord of of demons. You can see that there. If Jesus is casting out demons by the lord of the flies, by Beelzebul, then he's fighting against someone else. He's casting out demons from someone else's gang, and therefore there must be multiple uh, demon lords. The Pharisee Uh, the Pharisees responded in a similar way that we see here in chapter 9. They say he casts out demons by Satan. Here, he first affirms that there's one prince of demons, Satan. When the Pharisees first did that, we didn't hear a response from Jesus, but now he responds. He first affirms here that there's one prince of demons, Satan. He also affirms that Satan has a kingdom a realm where people follow him as their Lord. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And so he has a kingdom. He has followers who obey him and follow him as Lord. And so Jesus says, if Satan's demons are working against each other, then Satan's kingdom will, be, will self-destruct. It's an impossibility. It's a logical impossibility for Satan both to have a kingdom, but also to have a kingdom that's divided against itself. A a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And then Jesus says, let's pretend, though, for a moment. That's the reality. There's one Satan. There's not multiple leaders of demons. There's one leader of the demons. But Jesus then begins to say, let's pretend, though, that what you're saying is true, that there's demons, and they're fighting against other demons, other demon gangs. I am aligned with Beelzebub's faction, as you say. By whom do your followers cast out demons? Now, Jesus here was referring, referring to the followers or the members of their party, the Pharisaic party, 
those who followed them, they had their own professional exorcists. They had their own professional demon hunters. Uh, those that cast out demons in people, they, they had them. Jesus was referring to that activity among the Pharisees. If I am on one side, as you say, and this is what, essentially what Jesus is saying, if I am on one side, as you say, on one side of the demonic power, whose side are you on? Which dark prince do your disciples serve? You see that? If I'm doing it, you're doing it. Who do you serve? Now Jesus, of course, is saying this publicly. He wants the crowds to hear this. He wants them to hear their logic. and to, He's breaking it down in front of them so that they will be left with making a choice based on truth. And this, of course, as Jesus responds this way, it stuck the Pharisees in their lie. If they affirm what Jesus said about Satan's kingdom being divided, that that is true. Satan cannot contend against himself, otherwise his kingdom will be torn apart. And so there's only one Satan. Um, If they agree with that, then they have to confess on the other side that Jesus was in fact overturning Satan's kingdom by these miracles. Well, okay, there is one Satan, and this miracle they have to admit that this miracle is proof that Jesus is overturning Satan's domain, his kingdom. He's contending against Satan's kingdom. If they, and they don't want to do that, of course, so they can't say that. If they agree with the other scenario, their own lie, then they also have to confess in front of the crowds that they too cast out demons by another prince of darkness. And of course, they don't want to do that. They don't want to serve Jesus, but they also don't want to mess up any praise that they get from man. And so they can't do either. They're stuck in their lie. The truth was what Jesus says in verse 28. He wanted the crowds to hear this so that they could decide for themselves about the question that they asked. Could this be the son of David? If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's the truth. That was the truth. That's reality. And that's what he wanted the crowds to think about and make a decision on. This is the truth, and it's the truth for us as well, friends. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised king. He is the son of David. He was empowered as the Messiah with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God beyond measure. And so he's operating in the power of the Holy Spirit when he's performing these miracles. And by the Spirit of, so by the Spirit of God, he's been set apart and empowered to be God's Messiah. And in the power of the Spirit, Jesus, by his healings and his preaching, and ultimately by his crucifix, crucifixion and his resurrection, by all of these things, Jesus was ushering into this world the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. It was entering into our realm. The spiritual kingdom of heaven was making itself known in the physical realm. And Jesus' miracles, his preaching, his work on the cross is all evidence of that. If it is by the Spirit of God that I'm doing these things, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And you have a decision to make. That's what that means. You have a decision to make about the question that you ask. Could this be the son of David? Could this be our king? And so... Thus, with the coming of Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah, Satan has been bound, friends. His days are numbered. 
Whenever you see the Spirit of God, wherever you see the Spirit of God leading people to Christ, to worship Him, to bow the knee to Him, which you see it every week right here, we are evidence that the kingdom of God has come upon this world because we have been plundered. We have been plundered from Satan's house. We belong to Christ now. Wherever you see the Spirit of God lead people to Christ and pay homage to Him as the Son of David, the Messiah, there you see the kingdom of God. There you see the kingdom of God advanced in the world. Now John made this clear, that that is the Gospel writer John, when he said that we must be born by the Spirit to see the kingdom of heaven. So everyone who is born by the Spirit, you and I, have faith in Christ. We see the kingdom of heaven, we are made part of the kingdom of heaven, and we are evidence that the kingdom of heaven has come. The Spirit, working with the Gospel, makes us able to see Jesus and to speak about Jesus, to praise Him, to pray to Him. He opens our mouths. He opens our eyes so that we can see Him. And as we see His glory, we respond with our mouth to praise Him, to tell others about Him, to preach Him, to pray to Him. Now, friends, with this in mind, though, our physical bodies are still broken. But we use these bodies to join with people in gathering his elect, whoever gathers with me. That is what we have been given the gift of faith for, to serve the church in the gathering process, gathering others from the world, helping our Messiah, our King, helping the church plunder Satan's house, as it were. Whoever gathers with me, that's us. We gather with Christ, whatever gifts that we've been given by the Spirit, we use in service of that goal. Satan, however, he likes to see sheep isolated. He likes to scatter, try to scatter the sheep. And so they become easy targets for wolves. We are called to be unified. Whoever gathers with me, whoever does not gather with me, scatters. That's the work of the devil. Satan wants to scatter the sheep, we are called to be unified, to strengthen the sheep, and to go after the lost ones. And we do this, friends, knowing that one day when the kingdom comes in its fullness, our physical bodies will, in fact, be made whole. To Christ be all praise and glory now and forevermore.